Oh, there he goes. All right. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. I, uh, I was praying this week, and I was debating on what I would preach on this morning. And uh, I know many, obviously, it's, it's Christmas, and many would think, well, Luke, as a matter of fact, my wife's like, you're not going to preach Christmas message? You're not going to preach on Luke chapter 2? Or, and, uh, but I, I just felt like the Lord leading me to, to, to preach on this. Um, I've, I've never preached this message before, and, and um, I just thought it was fitting. And so I will look at Luke chapter 4. Beginning at verse, uh, let's begin at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of the sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes and eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, Is is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, Doubtless you will quote to me the proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum. Do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say unto you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. To a woman who was a widow. And there were many leopards in the land of Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on their, on their town, uh, of which their town was built, so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, as we approach your word this morning, I pray, God, that you would hide me behind your cross. I pray, Lord, that as we look at scripture, at truth from your word, that we would all be drawn to you. That you would be high and lifted up. And Lord, as we as we come together and we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the, the giver and the gift, I pray that our attention would be drawn to you and for who you are and what you've done, your great love 
toward us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Some of you, uh, let me ask you this. Have you heard the story of a man who purchased a horse that formerly belonged to a preacher? In order to make the horse go, the command, praise the Lord, had to be given. To stop the horse, hallelujah, was instructed. The purchaser did all the right in, in getting the horse started. Praise the Lord, he shouted, and the horse took off in a full gallop. The problem was when the horse was heading for a cliff. Woe, the man shouted, but to no avail. Suddenly he realized that he had forgotten the command to stop the horse, and just in the nick of time he remembered, Hallelujah! And the horse came to a stop at the very edge, edge of the cliff so that the owner could look over into the chasm below. And the man began to feel a bit religious himself, and so with a great excitement, in relief, he shouted, praise the Lord. You may be wondering, okay, what's the point of this well-worn story? The point is that saying the wrong thing can get a person into a lot of trouble. There are a number of very public personalities that can testify to the truth of this statement. I can immediately think of several polit political figures not to mention some religious leaders that have found their statement have gotten them into a lot of trouble. In the case of this fictitious writer and our Lord Jesus Christ, saying what appeared to be the wrong thing nearly got both of them tossed headlong over the edge of a cliff. The one critical difference, however, is with the statements of Jesus, they were purposeful. Jesus did not suffer from the slip of a tongue, but from a careful, deliberate statement made to people with whom he had lived and worshipped as he grew up. As we look at this, the tension of the, the text we see is, is the question is, why did Jesus deliberately sabotage his popularity among those with whom he had lived? We're going to look at that and, and answer that question as we go through. But let's look at verse 14. And Jesus returned the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and, report, and a report about him went through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues before uh, being glorified by all. So Jesus comes back to Nazareth, his hometown. Uh, previous, just to add some context to where we're at here in chapter 4, uh, the beginning of chapter 4, we see the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness by Satan. After that, he begins his public ministry. There is a year or more that goes by before he comes back to his hometown of Nazareth. A lot has happened in that time. Matter of fact, we see it re record in, in the Gospel of John just some things that had happened during his first year of the ministry he was introduced by John the Baptist as the Messiah. He was called some, if not all, of his disciples. Cleansed the temple in Jerusalem. He talked to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, a, a, a prominent Jewish teacher. He healed the nobleman's son from a distance, the nobleman approaching him in Canaan while his son was ill in Capernaum. 
And in the Gospel of John at the end, John states there are many more miracles that Jesus did that wasn't recorded. So he, he could have done a lot more during that time before he came back to his hometown of Nazareth. But what's significant about this is long before Jesus would return back to his town, there would be people back home that had heard reports her testimonies of what Jesus had done and what he has accomplished. They were eager and, and, and waiting for him to return. And so when he did come back to his hometown of Nazareth, they were excited. They were excited, over to see what was happening. What is Jesus going to do here, his hometown? And so he comes back. Um, I can imagine what it must felt like for Jesus to return back to a place where he grew up. As a child who never sinned, he would very likely have been rejected by his peers, many of them. Who would want to hang out with a goody two-shoe? I'm sure they used that phrase back then. I'm not sure what they would use. But, but I'm sure he wasn't well-liked with his peers around his same age. But Jesus would have known all the local business owners in the area where his parents would shop, where, where Mary would go, where Joseph would go. He would know the people. The people would know him. I mean, at the early age of 12, Jesus was speaking in the local synagogues around the area. And then he goes off, and he comes back, and they're waiting. What is Jesus going to say? What is he going to do? I'm sure there's going to be some great miracle he's going to perform. I mean, this is his hometown. I mean, we, we, you know, we've practically, we've known him ever since he was born. So he gets there and he quotes from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because you have appointed or anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he took the scroll, he rolled it back up, and he sat down. And every eye that was there was fixed upon Jesus. Why did he just say, I, I can imagine some of them, wow, that was so deep. That was great. I mean, obviously, there were many there that knew that he was quoting. Obviously, that he was reading the book of Isaiah. But many of them were wondering, what is, what is Jesus doing? Well, what did he mean? And many of those that were listening to Jesus as he read Isaiah, some of them would have picked up on the sense that, he actually uh, didn't quote a phrase that was in Isaiah 61, verse 2. He left out. He left out the, the part where it says that uh, in a day of vengeance of our God. He left that out. And I'm sure many of them, when they were there, they were listening to Jesus, and they said, maybe one leaned over to the other and said, hey, did he misread? Did he just skip that? I, I, I don't know. What, what was he thinking? 
I don't know, but you know what? It was good. He, he is for us. It's going to do great things. Don't worry about it. You see, Jesus did not, he, he left that out on purpose. Because Jesus did not come to condemn. He came to save. That was his purpose in coming the first time. And Jesus knew that coming the first time, he was doing the will of his Father who sent him. And coming the first time, he was coming to seek and to save those who were lost, such as, such as us. And we see that here. And many of them around were, were, were talking to each other. And, and, and it says here that their eyes were fixed on him. In verse 21, as if to, as if to say, okay, is Jesus going to say anything else? He's just going to leave us here? That, I mean, what else is he going to say? And obviously Jesus knows their hearts and he knows what they're thinking. And he says in verse 21, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words and said, wow, hey, that is great. Is this Joseph? Is this Joseph's son? The one who grew up here? Like, wow, I cannot believe. Look how much he has grown. Look at the wisdom that he has partaken. And you know what? They're, they're all wringing their hands because they're excited because, okay, he's going to do something great. This is his hometown. They're, they're ready. You know, if Jesus was ever, and by the way, he was, tempted to do wrong and to say the wrong thing, this was a perfect opportunity. He had his peers, people that he grew up with, looking him right in the eyes, waiting for him to do something great. Jesus could have got up there, and he could have just relished in this opportunity and this moment you know, the Bible says, and don't think that Jesus, this wasn't a temptation for him to do. I'm not saying that it was. It's not indicated here, but the Bible does say that he was tempted in all points as we, yet without sin. When put in a pressure situation, every single one of us face those times. Every single one of us come to the opportunities where we have a decision to make. We make choices and decisions every single day, some more weightier than others. But Jesus is put in a moment, in this opportunity to, to, to go either way. And obviously we know Jesus, being God, was going to make the right decision. And so he starts out with this. He says in verse 23, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So basically, he, is, he's, he's, he knows what they're thinking. He knows what they are, they are is hoping that Jesus would do. They know that. He, he knows that they know that. And so Jesus goes on, and he says this in the next verses. Uh, he, he, he talks about two prophets in the Old Testament. He talks about how the prophets were never, and, and you can look back in the Old Testament, the prophets were never treated uh, very good. They would tell Israel they needed to repent, they needed to turn from their sins, or God would judge, he would bring judgment, and, and often that's what had happened because they would fail to repent. And people did not want to hear truth. Many of them were persecuted, if not killed. And Jesus tells this illustration here. And he said, truly I say unto you, no prophet is acceptable 
in his hometown. And he goes on and mentions two examples. He mentions an example of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17. Do you remember the story? Elijah goes out, there's a drought for three and a half years, no rain on the earth. I mean, it's, it's dry. And God says he's going to look after his, his prophet, his man of God. He tells him to go to the brook Cherith. There's water there. He goes, and then that dries up. And he says, look, there's a, a widow lady in Zarephath. Go to her, and you'll be taken care of. And so he goes to this woman who's got a son. He goes there, and he asks for some water. And the Bible says that she gives it to him. But then he asks for some food. And you remember what she said? She says, look, I... All I have is enough for me and my son. I am about to, I'm preparing to, to make that now, and then we're going to go and die. That's basically what she's saying. We're going to eat and we're going to die because we have nothing else. There is no more food. And Elijah tells her, look, do what I say. Just feed me. Give me what you have, and God's going to provide. He'll provide the rest. And we know from the story that's exactly what happened. The very next day, they would wake up and find food. The next day after that, they would wake up and there's food. Every single day during the drought, God provided for them. Why? Because by faith, they trusted God that he would do what he said he would do. Then he gives another example with, with Naaman, the leper. In 2 Kings chapter 5, uh, Naaman, the captain of the host of the king of Syria... He was the military leader in Syria. Syria, by the way, during this time was not uh, friends with Israel. And so, he had everything going for him but what? He was a leper, the Bible says. And, and he had a little maid, a, a, a maid girl, she was probably 12, 13 year old, that was taken out of captivity in the land of Israel that was there. And she said, look, I, I know a prophet, a man of God, who you, if you go to him, he can heal you, of, he can cleanse you of your leprosy. And he goes and he sends a letter, supposedly to go to Elisha, but it ends up going to the king of Israel. And you remember when the king of Israel reads it, he, he, he starts to freak out. He panics because he says, who am I to heal a man of leprosy? He's thinking that, okay, Syria is trying to start a war with us. This isn't good. But it finally does go to Elisha. Naaman comes up. He goes to the home of Elisha. And Elisha doesn't even come to the door. He sends his servant to the door and he tells them, yeah, Elisha said if you'll go to the Jordan River and you dip seven times and you come back up, you'll be cleansed of your leprosy. Remember Naaman's response? Angry. This, this is a man of prestige. I am Naaman. I'm captain of, of, of the host, the king of Syria. I, I'm a military leader. He doesn't even come out to me. He wants me to go to the River Jordan. It's a muddy, murky, dirty river. What about the other two rivers? They're clean. Why can't I go there? And so he goes, and he dips one time, two, three, four, five, six, nothing happens. And then the seventh time, he comes back up, and his skin is clean again. He is cleansed of his leprosy. And it goes on to say, that he acknowledges, and he says, now I know that there is a God in Israel. 
and believes. And when I look at these two stories, I'm so glad that Jesus put these in here as reminders and, and, and speaking on this behalf because I am reminded on both of these two incidents of the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of God's love for man, that he would be gracious, that he would show mercy, that he would show grace to the poor and to the rich. It doesn't matter social fabric. It doesn't matter demographic. It doesn't matter geographic. God's mercy, God's grace, God's love is limitless. And we see that, a beautiful picture of that, in what we're celebrating here this week. That he would come to die for us. Sinners, undeserving, what, what love, what mercy, what grace. Obviously, this is not what the people wanted to hear. They wanted Jesus to be their king, their Messiah. He, he wanted to be their ruler, to take care of all their problems. But that's not Jesus' intent. That's not why he came. He came for the souls of man. And for that, I am grateful. And I hope you are as well. And so they brought him to the edge of the cliff. Um, back then, when they would stone somebody, they would take them to the edge of a cliff. They would throw them off. They would take big, giant boulders and throw down on them. So basically, that's what they had in mind and intention to do with Jesus here. And so they bring him here, and the Bible says that he goes through them in their midst. Now, it's, it seems mystical. He, he gets away. Um, I can't explain it. I don't know. The Bible just says it. And uh, he, he goes through them in their midst, and he, he goes away. Because it was not his time. That's not how he came to die. The prophets prophesied how he would come to die, and that would not be it. So what do we gather from all of this? How does all of this apply to us, and what principles are we to pull from all of this? Well, first I see from the passage is that God's prophets are never popular. Those uh, that, that, that stand for truth, that proclaim truth, wherever it may be, whether it be church, whether it be at work, whether it may be, are never popular. It goes against the fray of, of, of America and who, who we are. Political correctness has corrupted all that we stand for and all around us. And in second, I see that as Christians, we've all been given a prophetic task. Every single one of us, the, the church as the body of Christ is to continue to teach that which our Lord began on his earthly ministry. The Great Commission has been given to us to go out to make disciples, to compel people, to, to tell them the truth of the gospel. If you look back at, at verse 18 and 19, in essence what Jesus is saying there, uh, the, Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. If I'm saved, I have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside of me that leads and guides and directs me 
to go out to proclaim the good news, to tell others about him. It says to proclaim the good news to the poor, not those who are, are, are poor in money. All those are poor that don't have Christ. Spiritually weak. To proclaim liberty to the captives, those who are in, in, in bond to sin and needing that forgiveness. And by the way, there, there's nothing in and of ourselves that we can do to save someone. It's the Spirit of God that convicts by using the Word of God that draws men to Him. And then we see a third point. One of the greatest hindrance of a prophetic ministry is the desire to be popular with the world and to have the approval of man. You know, I think if we're honest, that is something as Christians that is a struggle. To, to tell the truth is not always easy. To stand for truth is not always easy. There's a part of us at times that desire the approval of man. And when we do that, we deter away from the gospel. Maybe we water it down. Maybe we go another way. Jeremiah was a prophet in the Old Testament that was misunderstood many times. Very rare that he had anyone ever listen to him or pay him any mind. But God called him to a specific task, a specific purpose for him to stay faithful no matter who would listen and many would not. He said this in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. Do not say I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And the same God that was with Jeremiah is the same one that is with us, wherever we go. He'll never leave us or forsake us. Jesus was rejected in his hometown. And I would like to think that times and things have changed. But today isn't much different. There are many that will accept him as Jesus in a manger. There were many that were ooh and ah as a baby lying in the manger. They will read the story. They will sing the songs. But there isn't much of a threat as long as Jesus is in the manger. But there is much more to the story. And brothers and sisters, may we, like Jesus, live a life of boldness. Yes, let us celebrate. Let us remember the birth of Christ. Without it, there is no hope for humanity. There is no hope for us. I'm very thankful. Christmas time is my favorite time of the year. Let us also remember as we live each day that we have a great responsibility to show the love of Christ. We have a great responsibility to live as a light to shine in this dark world, to be a reflection of the grace of God to others. And through that boldness, they may see Christ in and through us and be drawn to him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for 
testimony of scripture, for your, your grace, your love that you have for, for all of us and demonstrated in, 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 the, in the birth that we celebrate here at Christmas. And we're so thankful for that, for the giver and the gift, for your great love for us. Help us to be bold in our stand for you. Even when we're put in moments to where we have decisions to make that are sometimes hard, help us, Lord. You promise us this scripture that you'll never leave us or forsake us, that you are with us. Help us not to quench the spirit, but help us, Lord, to be led and guided by it and to trust you. And we're thankful for all that you do in Christ's name we pray. Amen.